We're in the midst of a series in the book of Revelation, and I invite you to open with me uh, to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. Our text today will be verses 1 through 8, Revelation 15. We're going to read this chapter in its entirety. mentioned before that I believe that the book of Revelation is structured by seven different cycles, uh, each one of those uh, taking us, as it were, from the first to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we move further along in the book, increasingly the emphasis lies upon his second coming, what will happen there. Um, The theme of or uh, chapters 15 and 16 really are the fifth of these seven cycles. The theme of these two chapters are going to be the bowls of God's wrath that are poured out. But today we're looking at Revelation 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's now hear uh, the word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with hearts of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This ends this reading in God's uh, word. Let's now look to the Lord uh, in prayer. Lord, our 
God and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this vision that we have in the book of Revelation today. And Lord, we thank you for the truth which these pictures represent. The truth of your matchless sovereignty. The truth of your uh, infinite holiness. The truth of your unquenchable wrath. The truth, Lord, of your sweetness for those who are called by your name. And Lord, we pray that even this morning, amidst the busyness of life and all the things that are going on, that we would stop and catch this glimpse of our holy and majestic God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. One of R.C. Sproul's, the theologian R.C. Sproul's most well-known books, is a book entitled The Holiness of God. And Sproul began that book by telling us of an episode of something that happened to him when he was in college. It had been just a few months before this, I believe, that he had become converted, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this incident, he tells us what happened one particular night. The account is a little bit long, but I'm going to read it in its entirety. Sproul says this, that I was compelled to leave the room. A deep, undeniable summons disturbed my sleep. Something holy called me. The only sound was the rhythmic ticking of the clock on my desk. It seemed vague and unreal as if it were in a chamber submerged under fathoms of water. I had reached the beginning edge of slumber, where the line between consciousness and unconsciousness is blurred. I was suspended in that moment when one hangs precariously on the edge, a moment when sounds from the outside world still intrude on the quietness of one's brain, that moment just before the surrender to the night occurs. Asleep, but not yet asleep. Awake, but not alert still vulnerable to the inner summons that said, get up, get out of this room. The summons became stronger and more urgent, impossible to ignore. A burst of wakefulness made me jerk upright and swing my legs over the side of my bed and onto the floor. Sleep vanished in an instant. My body sprang into resolute action. Within seconds, I was dressed and on the way out of my college dormitory. A quick glance at the clock registered the time in my mind, ten minutes before midnight. The night air was cold, turning the snow of the morning now to a hard-crusted blanket. I felt the crunch under my feet as I walked toward the center of campus at Westminster College, uh, by the way, in western Pennsylvania. Uh, The moon cast a ghostly pall on the college buildings, whose gutters were adorned with giant icicles, dripping water arrested in space, solid daggers of ice that resembled frozen fangs. No human architect could design these gargoyles of nature. 
The gears of the clock atop Old Main Tower began to grind, and the arms met and embraced vertically. I heard the dull groan of the machinery a split second before the chimes began to ring. Four musical tones signaled the full hour. They were followed by the steady, sonorous striking of twelve. I counted them in my mind as I always did, checking for a possible error in their number, but they never missed. Exactly twelve strokes peeled from the tower like an angry judge's gavel banging on metal. The chapel was in the shadow of Old Main Tower. The door was made of heavy oak with a gothic arch. I sprung it open and entered the narthex. The door fell shut behind me with a clanging sound that reverberated from the stone walls of the nave. Uh, The echo startled me. It was a strange contrast to the sounds of daily chapel services where the opening and closing of the doors were muffled by the sounds of students shuffling to their assigned places. But now the sound of the door was amplified into the void of midnight. I waited for a moment in the narthex, allowing my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the darkness. The faint glow of the moon seeped through the muted stained glass windows. I could make out the outline of the pews in the center aisle that led to the chancel steps. I felt a majestic sense of space, accented by the vaulted arches of the ceiling. They seemed to draw my soul upward, a a sense of height that evoked a feeling of a giant hand reaching down to pick me up. I moved slowly and deliberately toward the chancel steps. The sound of my shoes against the stone floor evoked terror-filled images of German soldiers marching in hobnailed boots along cobblestone streets. Each step resounded down the center aisle as I reached the carpet-covered chancel. And there, I sank to my knees. I had reached my destination. I was ready to meet the source of the summons that had disturbed my rest. I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was telltale, a thump, thump against my chest. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. The terror passed, but soon it was followed by another wave. This wave was different. It flooded my soul with unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. And at once I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. Well, that moment was life-transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once for all. From this moment, there could be no turning back. There could be no erasure of the indelible imprint of its power. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. 
I knew in that hour that I had tasted of the Holy Grail. Within me was born a new thirst that could never be fully satisfied in this world. I resolved to learn more, to pursue this God who lived in dark Gothic cathedrals and who invaded my dormitory room to rouse me from complacent slumber. Well, what R.C. Sproul met on that particular day as a college student at Westminster College in Western Pennsylvania was indeed he met with a God who is a God of all holiness. And it is this God of holiness uh, that you and I, if we are truly Christians, must come to know and to understand. God is a holy God. And that's what this, this vision out of Revelation impresses freshly upon our minds. Uh, the holiness of this God with whom we have to do. And his holiness is pointed out in a couple of very significant ways in this passage. Uh, the first is that our holy, we, first place we see is that our, we see our holy God in his wrath against the unredeemed world. And the second thing is we see the holy God, our holy God, uh, being praised, or, uh, yeah, our holy God praised among his redeemed people. Our holy God in his wrath against the unredeemed world, and our holy God praised among his uh, redeemed saints. Well, the first thing that we do see in our passage, and we're sort of taking them a little bit in reverse order, it's in verse 1 and then verses 5 through 8, is our holy God in his wrath against the unredeemed world. Much like R.C. Sproul, as he went into that campus chapel that day in West, at Westminster, uh, had a sense of the holiness and the majesty and the awesomeness of this God. So John, receiving this heavenly vision on the Isle of Patmos, is immediately struck by the greatness of the God with whom he has to do. Then I saw another sign in heaven, verse 1. But what is it that he sees? Immediately he says, great and amazing. Something not ordinary. Something not every day. But rather something that elevated his mind and his thoughts to the highest place. And there what he beholds, first of all, is this. Seven angels, we're told, with seven plagues. Seven heavenly beings coming out of the presence of God in brightness and in glory and holding with them, we're told here, seven plagues, which we are told are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, We've run into this number seven a lot in the book of Revelation. It's surely the number of completion. Uh, judgment has already been expressed under a number of different images in the book of Revelation. We've seen seven seals already unsealed. We've seen seven trumpets that were to be blown. And with the unsealing of those seals and the blowing of those trumpets, came the wrath of God expressed. But here, 
and an even elevated measure, we're now going to have seven bowls. We're going to read of that a little bit later in verse uh, 7. And then again in chapter 16 in verse 1 of these seven bowls that are going to be poured out. And as these bowls are poured out upon the earth, they're going to bring plagues upon the people. Uh, Each one of these different images that have been used in Revelation have kind of focused on different things. The seals uh, uh, spoke of Christ judging and yet protecting his people and keeping his people from harm, allowing them to pass safely into heaven. The trumpets, on the other hand, the focus there was on the note of warning, that the trumpets sounded the warning to the nations of final judgment, offering them repentance. But now with these plagues, there's something of a finality to this. The emphasis here falls upon the wrath of an almighty, pure, holy God. There's a kind of increased severity now, even in these these judgments. It's looking at the various judgments of God, but now through the, the lens of this increased severity as they express the wrath of almighty God. So often with, the, with the, uh, the, uh, the seals, it spoke of a quarter of uh, the earth being afflicted or uh, with the trumpets of a third of the earth. But now the picture is that of, of a completeness uh, to this judgment. And so these, like these other judgments, represent God's judgments through history culminating in that final judgment at Jesus' return. Uh, but the emphasis again here is upon the wrath of the Lord. Well, it's open for us beginning in verse 5. As we see this holy God who stands at the head of all of uh, 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 over in heaven, we're told there that John looks, verse 5, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven is opened. This is Uh, the image here is that of the tabernacle. Do you remember how God dwelt in the tabernacle amidst his people in, 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 uh, in the wilderness? It's the place of God's dwelling. Well, here is the tabernacle that is made without hands, that is in the heavens, the, the true place of God's dwelling. And we're told that this tabernacle, which represents the, the presence, the dwelling place of Almighty God, it is now opened. And what does this sanctuary contain? It describes it as the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Uh, the witness. Uh, it contained uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, you'll remember. And within that Ark of the Covenant was uh, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments being the, the witness or testimony of God to His perfect and moral law to which all are accountable. And so from heaven now, this testimony is given God appears and all the world is held account to his moral law the perfect expression of his holy character the standard by which all people are to live verse 6 then it goes on to say that out of this sanctuary then come seven angels with seven plagues these angels come clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. They've, they've come out of the, 
the purity of the presence of God, they're, they're almost too dazzling to look upon. And they appear now ready to enact the judgment of God. The angels are given by one of the four living creatures seven golden bowls. Gold, again, a precious metal representing coming from the presence of God. And these dazzling angels are given these seven different bowls with which they are going to pour out the wrath of Almighty God, His judgment against this world. And who is the one who is judging the world? It is described there as the one who lives forever and ever. Unlike the, this creation which uh, comes into being at a certain time, is finite in every part. Rather, the one who stands in judgment over all is the one who is the eternal God without beginning and without end. And so all of his judgments will not fail. Then verse 8, we're told that the sanctuary then is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. You'll remember other instances in Scripture, Mount Sinai, for example, where there was smoke. Or when God's glory visibly fell on the tent of meeting, Exodus 40 and verse 35, in a, in a cloud of smoke and glory, and Moses was unable to enter. Or at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, when God's visible glory filled the temple, it was a glory cloud there. And uh, again, there was, a, there was a thickness to what was going on. And it's saying here, this is the imagery that's used. The idea is, is that the glory of this indescribable, majestic, sovereign God is now present in heaven and he is ready to pour out his judgment upon the creation. That here, the judgment that is about to come, the wrath of God, comes from the infinitely pure and perfect God uh, himself. The emphasis of this whole section, as it were, is this idea that even that God's wrath against sin is one of the perfections of God. Now, you might think that that's such a strange thought to say that God's wrath, that God's wrath, his just anger against sin is one of his perfections. The gloriously infinite God is to be a God of wrath. We, say, we think that's a little odd, don't we? Because we were to say that if you and I were to become wrathful or angry, uh, we would generally think that that's not a good thing, right? I might say, oh, I had such a rough day yesterday, and what is, what is the worst? I became angry with uh, some loved ones in my home, and I, I was short with them, and I, I, I poured out my anger uh, upon them. Um, I, I lost my cool. I, I had a, a, a violent outburst against them, and we would say, oh, that's something of which I'm ashamed. That wasn't me at my best. Oh, I hope to do better than that today. That's generally how we would speak if we were to speak of 
our own wrath or our own anger. Well, then how is it that we can speak here of God's wrath or God's anger being one of his perfections? The reason is, is that God's wrath is very, very different from our selfish, self-focused anger. You see, God doesn't lose his cool. It's not that God becomes irrational or that God flies off his handle. But rather, God's wrath is one of his perfections because God's wrath is simply his holiness that is stirred into activity against sin. It's the purity, the matchless, spotless, moral purity of God coming into contact with the evil of human sin. J.I. Packer helpfully puts it this way. He says that God's wrath is his settled implacable hostility to sin, uh, hostility to sin, that God's wrath is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. But it is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. That God is only angry where anger is called for. That all of God's indignation is righteous. And he says that it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. And that's such an important thing, that we see God's wrath as the expression of his holy character as it confronts human rebellion and human sin. And for God to be indifferent to sin would mean that he's not truly and genuinely holy. But rather, it is the expression, beautiful expression of his holy character in all of its parts that it cannot, he cannot bear uh, to look upon human sin. And so it is this God, this glorious God, who is coming in wrath against this world. You know that I think one of the, perhaps the greatest sin of our own age is that sinful mankind has forgotten the holiness and the wrath of God. That all so often man has been made the measure of all things. That when people consider, well, what is, what's moral? What's, what's a life of morality? What does that look like? Instead of looking to God, and to God's character, and to God's standard, it becomes, as it were, a matter of a public opinion poll. Well, what do most people think is right? Well, when people think about what the greatest end is, why are we here? For what are we living? 
think in our world today, it's often to promote long life and happiness and health rather than God and His glory. Okay? People might have a place for religion, but they view religion as simply those things which help us or make us feel better, a kind of therapeutic look at religion. It's okay for you to have your beliefs if they make you happy, if they help you live. But I'm going to have my own beliefs that make me happy. And that's the measure of all things. You see, there's a certain horizontal way in which our world looks at things. People can get behind humanitarian causes that help other people, and often those are good things. But they have no place for the worship of God, which is a primarily vertical thing. We worship him. Do you see the whole vision of God and of his holiness and of the idea that he's a God of wrath with whom we must to do, must have to do has been taken in large measure out of human consciousness. Dear friends, I think that's the greatest sin of our age. And I think all the various other maladies that we see, the varieties of kinds of human sins that we see, oh, back to that point, the people have lost sight entirely of this God of all holiness and wrath. And yet Revelation tells us that's exactly who this God is. He is a God of indescribable holiness, a God of wrath against all who would seek to go their own way. And so that's the first thing that we see, our holy God in his wrath against the unredeemed World. And next week, we're going to look in, verse, in chapter 16 at the variety of ways in which these plagues uh, 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 come forth in this world, in which this wrath is expressed. But now, secondly, today, I want us to consider our holy God praised among his redeemed saints. Our holy God praised among his redeemed saints. We see this in verses 2 through 4. Because in the midst of this indescribably uh, awesome scene of God in his holiness ready to pour out wrath upon unredeemed mankind, nonetheless we are given this vision that is, uh, that, that is uh, so much more uh, uh, that, that is uh, glorious, dear friends. Because there in verse 2 we're told that I saw then what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, the sea in the, uh, in the Bible often represents that which is turbulent or chaotic. But this sea is a sea of glass. It's a sea of calm, a sea of peace. The chaos has been stilled. And here we are told the redeemed people are standing now next to this Sea of glass, which is coming from the throne of Almighty God. Now, it's a sea mingled with fire, we're told. Our God is still a consuming fire, a God of all holiness and majesty. But he appears before this sea of glass. And who are there who appear with him? And we're told exactly who it is that appear with him. It's those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside this sea of glass. Well, who are these people? Well, this is not just some special grouping of Christians. 
It's not just the martyrs. It's not just those who are alive at the end times and survive those. Uh, But rather, in the same way that when we talked about the beast, we said that the beast and his activity is present uh, really throughout this age. Uh, So this is referring to all Christians who who endure. They are said to conquer this beast. As Herman Hooksoma puts it, that all the saints, all those who have been faithful from Abel to the last witness in the kingdom of God on earth shall stand there at the sea of glass to join the victorious crowd in singing their song of Moses and the Lamb. So this is describing, dear friends, a heavenly scene. Amidst this God who is coming in judgment, here is a scene of heaven. And there at, in that heavenly place are all who are redeemed. If you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, this is describing where you will be with him. And friends, the scene is glorious. They express a scene of triumph here. There's a song of of victory that's being sung. We're told that we have harps of God in our hands and together this heavenly chorus is singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And we're singing together a song of, of triumph. And you might remember the, uh, what this is referring to, that uh, when the people of Israel in the Old Testament were under bondage and slavery in Egypt, what had happened, but that God powerfully and sovereignly delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember? He poured out the, the plagues upon the Egyptians going to come into plagues next week it's a it's a reference back to that but plagues upon the egyptians and finally that passover uh uh the, the lamb above the doorpost and the people of god were brought out and they were brought through the waters of the red sea and that very power of god which caused the waters of the red sea to part And for the people of Israel to be saved was the power that caused those waters of the Red Sea to come and to bring his righteous wrath against the Egyptians. And it was a moment of celebration and of triumph. In Exodus 15, there was a song of of Moses that the Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider are thrown into the sea, they cried. And it was a song of thanksgiving and of gladness. But now here we are told in heaven... That that song which was sung at the Exodus is going to be our song as well. It's a song of the whole redeemed people of God. And we're going to sing not only of the triumphs that he did bringing Israel through the Red Sea, but the even greater triumphs to which those, uh, that deliverance pointed, which was indeed our deliverance from sin and death and hell through the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. It's a song of the triumph of the Lamb. And we're going to rejoice in gladness and delight. And I want you to notice just a few things about this song that we're going to sing because it ought to inform our praise now. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice is that it is a song which we can sing only because of the grace of God. That these redeemed saints... What are they speaking of? They are speaking of the Lord. They are ascribing all the victory to God. It is even the Lord who gives them their harps with which they can sing. The victory is all of God's grace. 
It is a song, secondly, which demonstrates the unity of God's people. You'll notice they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. It's a single song, really, that's being sung. Commentators agree about that. This is not two different songs. One for the Old Testament people. Here's another song for the new. But rather, it's their joint song together as the people of God. A song which finds ultimate fulfillment of Christ. And so it shows that when we sing this song, we're going to sing it in oneness with the people of God of all ages. It is a song also, you'll see, which proclaims salvation uh, through judgment. That is, that is God, as God's people uh, praise Him, we are praising the God who not only judges His enemies, but who by that same power saves his people. But then fourth, and most importantly, I want us to see that this is a song, dear friends, which is utterly taken up with God. And that's where I just want to land us for these last few minutes today. Oh, dear friends, to be one of the Lord's redeemed people is to be utterly taken up with God, to be taken up with his greatness, with his power, with his glory. Believers are to be preoccupied with the glory and the might of this unchanging and holy God. Did you notice what the theme is here in heaven? Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's the Lord's fame that, he's, that, that the saints are concerned with. You alone are holy. And then it looks with expectation. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, William Barclay says this. I don't always like a lot of what he wrote, but this is one thing that is good, I think. He said that in heaven a man will see the greatness of God fully displayed, and at last he will remember that nothing matters except God. That heaven is heaven because in it at last all self and self-importance are lost in the presence in the great, of the greatness and the glory of God. And that is so true, that these saints in heaven, what they are taken up with is the omnipotence of God, the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God, the fact that the vast nations of this earth are going to come and bow down before this one who is God himself. Do you see, for the saints, the holiness of God is not simply something to be feared, but it's something to be delighted in and prized. We love that our God is a holy God. And I simply ask you, is it your longing desire that this God would get the glory that is due his name? You know, we say that um, in this church, we say that we're reformed Christians. And what we mean by that is we want to be reformed, that is, according to what the Word of God says. It's the Word of God that is our rule. Well, 
What are, what are the, what's the defining mark of a Reformed Christian? You might say, well, it's the doctrine of predestination. Or you might say, well, it's the, it's the simplicity of worship. You might say it's, uh, uh, it's having a Christian world and life view, viewing every aspect of our life lived under God. And I would say all of those things are wonderful truths, biblical truths. But all of them are, as it were, subservient to something that's even greater. They're byproducts of something else. And I think there's a writer by the name of Stephen Reese, and I think he got it right when he said this. He said, this is the distinctive note of Reformed Christianity. It is that we are simply obsessed with God himself. That we are overwhelmed by his majesty, his beauty, his holiness, his grace. And can I ask you today, is that the case with you? Amidst all the things you you have going on in your world, whether you are a young child here, you're concerned with your school subjects, or your friends, or your sports, you're somebody that's a little bit older and you have concerns about your job perhaps, or your health, what's going on there, about the activities of what's going on in this world around you, dear friends, all of those are good concerns, they're just fine. But is your chief concern, is the chief, the chief passion of your heart to know this God who is the living God, the holy God? In the same way that R.C. Sproul went into that chapel as a college, in, in college, And they're met, as it were, with the holiness of God and had a vision of the holiness of God that absolutely gripped him. And defined the rest of his career, that he longed to know this holy Lord. Is it true of you that you long to know more of this holy and majestic God? Do you yearn to go to heaven where you will be with him and where you will see him? Do you long to make to know his glory in this world today? Dear friends, that is the defining mark. Young people, you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe that I'm a Christian. Well, good, I hope so. I hope that you've repented of your sins, that you're asking the Lord to forgive you. Yes, but friends, to be a Christian, it's not simply to ask the Lord to forgive us our sins, but then it's to say, Lord, then I want to know you and your holiness in your majesty, in your grace, in your greatness. I want to look at the song of these redeemed saints and I I want to say, yes, that's what I want to know. Lord, more of you. Great and amazing are your deeds. Can you say that of him? Do you you praise him and worship him for who he is? Oh, to have a God-centered vision like this. Let we just do that. Oh, Here in Revelation 15, we are brought face to face with God in all of his holiness and greatness, in his wrath against an unredeemed world, but in the praise that he receives from his redeemed saints. Might we delight in that holiness as well. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for uh, this vision that is given to us in uh, Revelation 15. We 
Lord, are amazed. We confess, Lord, that we have little sense even of what it means that you, the holy God, are coming in wrath against, against human sin. It is a just wrath. It's a deserved wrath. It's a holy wrath. Lord, we pray that we would have some vision of that. We pray that if any today are unredeemed, unrepentant of their sins, still in their sins, Lord, that they would be struck today by you, the holy living God with whom they must have to do. We pray that they would flee to the only place of safety, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, our God, that we who have been covered with Christ's blood might look afresh at the Savior and give you the glory as the God who is holy, holy in all of your ways, holy, O Lord, in all of your righteous acts, in your redeeming work even, O Lord. Might we rejoice in the majesty and sovereignty of who you are. O help us, Lord, we pray even as we come to the table today, refresh our souls. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.